0: it's a pleasure to be in milwaukee it's, uh, i do really have the opportunity to visit various communities and uh it, it's really great for example when i've done albuquerque new mexico and somebody comes over and says uh, i remember your family from milwaukee i find somebody who has migrated to some other parts of the united states or other parts of the world that's going to be and family in Milwaukee. But of course there's nothing like coming back, like coming back home. Uh, I remember many of you, some of you I don't remember directly, I remember members of your family here some of your parents and grandparents. Many of whom in many ways were my teachers. See, there's, there's many things that we learned from our teachers, there's many important things. And sometimes I don't know if we put enough emphasis on what we learn from our teachers in, in our youth. I have an illustrious grandfather who was a very famous Rebbe and scholar, worldwide fame. And one day he was visited by uh, the Malamit who taught him Alaspace, the cheder, And uh, he accorded this Malamit great respect and great honor. And the word got around how this rather simple person had been so welcomed and so honored by the great rabbi of sons. And the word got around and the uh the Muhammad who had later on taught him Talmud heard about this and he said, Well, I gotta get my fair share of honor too. And if this man had taught him our phase was so highly honored, just imagine what it's going to be like, what kind of uh, honors I'm going to get when I go, because after all, I was his Grammy and talmud. And so when he came, he was pleasantly received, but with no great big fuss, and uh, he waited for all the tumult to be made over him, but nothing happened. And so after a few days, he went over to the Rebbe and he asked, them, "Look, I uh, I really must share this with you and get it off my chest. And I heard that your other Muhammad here, the Tzaddi Olam face, when he was here, you know, you <coughs> you really glorified them. And you know, I remember teaching you Talmud and uh, I mean, uh, I didn't get a tenth of what he got." So the Rebbe said, "Look, it's very simple." He said, "What did he teach me?" He taught me an aleph. he taught me a phase. He said, that's remained eternally true. The aleph, is the aleph and the bae the phase. And everything that he taught me at that time is still true today. He says, when well, you taught me Talmud. He says, I went back and as I, I grew up, I learned and I realized you didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> all the explanations he gave me in the Talmud were not right. I had to re- forget what you said and relearn it all again. He said, I don't really if I can quit that kind gratitude. Uh, I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to so many people in Milwaukee who were my teachers. Uh, The whole show was my teachers. Your parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, they were there from from before the time that I was born. (coughs) I tried to capture some of the memories in the book, Generation to Generation. Some of you will read them, will recognize some of the names. For obvious reasons, I disguised some of the names and some I did, some I didn't. But you recognize the people, if you don't recognize the people, at least you'll recognize the types and you, you may remember them. And I learned, I learned so much from them. were very, very genuine people. There were people without chochmas, without any kinds of sophisticated elaboration, they're no, very, very simple and true to their principles. A wonderful people. But somebody said I'm going to talk about living and growing. And what right do I have to talk about living and growing? And what right do I have to claim any wisdom that I am going to authenticate with? Well. There I mentioned that one of the things that I've been doing is I've been working in the field of substance abuse, working with people who are recovering from some very difficult diseases. Conditions of alcohol addiction, drug addiction, which is unfortunately very prevalent. And in the process, I've had the opportunity to watch people recover. And to see them take destructive patterns of life, and totally turn them around and become very, very fine, contributing, upright people, simply a noxious to be with. <laughs> I may tell you, uh, although I don't know that it has any application, but all the doctors that take care of me or my family are all recovered alcoholics or recovered addicts.
1: And I won't allow a
0: doctor to touch any one of us unless he or she is a recovered addict or recovered alcoholic. They just say, well, <coughs> what kind of sense does that make? Well, it's a very practical thing. First of all, I think they're the most competent. That's strange, isn't it? I think that they are extremely competent people. However, a very practical thing, I have treated personally over 250 physicians who were alcoholic and drug addicted. And uh, they didn't come for treatment two weeks after they started drinking. They'd been drinking for 25 years. And uh, finally, when some disastrous crisis happened that they had to deal with their drinking, they had to deal with the problem, then they came for help. Which means that for almost 25 years, they weren't practicing medicine while they were under the effects of alcohol. Now, that's not necessarily bad. Uh, I can tell you some stories uh, that they practice some very efficient medicine. In fact, one of the stories I just heard a few weeks ago at a doctor's recovery meeting where one doctor told about the days, he's a friend of mine who I treated 15 years ago. He's now got 15 years of sobriety. But he was telling this story at that time he was practicing obstetrics, and uh, he got drunk one night. And when he came to the hospital in the morning, he felt very bad because there were three cesarean sections on that night, and he was supposed to be on duty. And here he was drunk. And he knew that his partner is going to really care into him for his dereliction and not being where he was supposed to have been. He said, so I sat there thinking of what I could say. And uh, I went to pick up the phone and call my partner and said, I didn't know what kind of ridiculous excuse I was going to make. But as I picked up the phone, there was a patient's chart, and it was my handwriting. And I looked at the other charts, My god, I had done all three cesarean sections during that night myself, I just didn't remember doing it. Now, he did an excellent job just he didn't remember doing it. So that can happen, but I've got this strange feeling that I want my doctor to know what he's doing and to remember it later on. Now, how am I going to know if my doctor is addicted or not? Now, if my doctor's a recovered addict and he's making four or five AA or NA meetings every week, I know he's But because if he stops going to meetings, I'll go, I'll go by it within a day or two. I've got the finest FBI CIA system in the world. So I know my doctors are sober. But me the end of the day. In the process of watching people recover from these dread diseases and build themselves into new personalities, I began to get a much better feeling as to what a healthy personality is supposed to be about. Now, in the problem, in the area of addiction, we talk about the need for spirituality. And some people wonder, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? So I took some time out to try and uh, describe what a spiritual person is like. And I made it so that it could be even acceptable as a first step by people who profess not to have a belief in God at all. And let them start off with a basic kind of spirituality. My first question was not how to define spirituality but how to define humanity. That's a simple thing. What is a human being? Now those of us who went to biology class learned that a human being is homo sapiens. Remember, you were taught that in 9th and 10th grade biology. Homo sapiens, two Latin words. If somebody came up and met you on the street and said to you, oh, you are a homo sapiens, <laughs> you might very well say, yes. Of course. You wouldn't particularly feel insulted. Well, that's because the words are Latin. But let me put them into English. HOMO stands for a group of animals that are called the hominoids, which includes gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees and monkeys and baboons and apes. They all belong to that group called HOMO. And so we belong to that group of HOMO also, okay? I guess because we walked up right on two feet. What makes us unique within that group is that we have intellect. Sapiens means intellect. Now, if somebody came up to you on the street instead of telling you you're a homo sapiens, would say, you know what you are? You are a badun with intellect. <laughs> you wouldn't take that at all it's very complimentary. <laughs> all they're telling you is are homo sapiens. But that's what science is telling us we are baboons with intellect. I sort of take some sort of issue with that because I think that there is more to a human being than just being a baboon with intellect. I don't deny the value of intellect, but there's something more to us. So I began looking for what else is there about us that's unique to a human being that separates us, that distinguishes us from animals. So let me tell you a few things that I came up with, and maybe you can come up with some on your own. <coughs> First of all, I think that we are creatures who have the unique ability, the capacity and ability to learn from past history. Now, you know, there are no other living thing can learn from past history. It's a uniquely human thing. For example, suppose that a very wonderful racehorse lost the Kentucky Derby by very small margin, just by a neck. Now that racehorse now fathers a little racehorse, a little horse who goes up to be a very fine racehorse just like his dad. What are the chances that this little racehorse, when it comes his time to run the Kentucky Derby, what are the chances that he will review his father's record And say, now, you know what happened to Daddy that he lost this race? He slowed up at a critical point. Never should have done that. That was his mistake. Now I will avoid that mistake and I will not slow up and so I will win the race. That would be learning from history. And I think you'll agree with me that that has never happened and never will happen. Because animals cannot learn from past history. We can. Right? So over and above, intellect, we have something else, the ability to learn from history. We also have an ability to think a little bit about what is the purpose of our existence. Now that doesn't mean that, we're, that we do it all the time or that we do it any of the time. but we have the ability to think what is the purpose of my existence. I don't believe that any animal ever thought that. You know, you sometimes driven by farmland. Years ago, this was farmland over here, my days. But uh, you drive through and you see cows sitting in the field, laying in the field, grazing or just chewing their cud, doing nothing, they're perhaps thinking. Now I don't know what a cow thinks about. Right? They don't think about fixing radiators. But I'm willing to bet that no cow has ever thought. I wonder why I'm here for it. wonder what this farm is all about. See, I don't think cows think about purpose of life. I don't think alligators and giraffes think about purpose of life. I don't think they have the ability to do that. Now, you and I have the ability to think about purpose of life. Okay. Over and above intellect, we have another thing that's unique to human beings. Getting back to our little friendly cow, what are the chances that that cow is thinking, I wonder if I'm as good a cow as I could be? What do I have to do to make myself into a better cow than I am? Do you think that animals think about self-improvement? Or do you think that animals can do anything to improve themselves? See, animals I created quite complete. They don't have to do anything other than grow in size. Whatever they were created to be, that's what they are. You and I are different. Because you see, if all we do is grow in size, we grow up to be big babies. <laughs> and we can be 6 feet 2, and weigh 240 pounds, and still be babies. And unfortunately, that happens. But that's not what it's intended. You and I have the capacity to make ourselves into something. So we have the capacity to make improvements in ourselves. Now, I once gave this comment, this comment and somebody challenged me on it and said, it's not quite true, because a caterpillar does make an improvement in it's all going it to a butterfly. And you got to admit that a butterfly, a pretty butterfly, there's certainly a great deal of improvement, there's certainly an improvement over a lonely caterpillar. I said, well, that's true. But does a caterpillar make itself into a butterfly or does it become a butterfly automatically? If it makes itself a butterfly, what it would happen if it would decide that it doesn't want to be a butterfly? What are the chances that a caterpillar crawls along and you know, sees this beautiful butterfly in the air, looks up at it, and says, look at that, my cousin, George. <laughs> look at him, those beautiful wings. 50 colors he's got there. I could do that too if I wanted. But I decided I'd let down Why? Because one time I started crawling up a tree, and when I got two inches off the ground and I looked down, I got sick from the heights. (laughs) Now, if I get sick from the heights of being two inches off the ground, just imagine if I'd ever get up there. No way. So, I'm not going into a cocoon. I'm not growing no wings. I'm not becoming a butterfly. I'm born a caterpillar, not a caterpillar. I don't want any part of this. You know, that can't happen. Because you see, a caterpillar does not choose to become a butterfly. It does not make itself a butterfly. It happens to It Comes a certain stage in his life cycle, he goes into the cocoon, comes not a butterfly, whether he likes it or not. So you see, an animal doesn't make any changes. You and I can make changes. We are not what we were programmed in our genes. Certainly, there are things about us that are programmed in our genes. But what I become is my business. Only you can become me, and you can change at any time. Well, there are obvious limitations. I can't sing like paparazzi. <laughs> and you can't draw like Rembrandt. But within range of our capabilities, we can make ourselves into whatever it is that we want <coughs> to be. Animals can't do that. So there you have another feature. That is unique to a human being. The ability to think about self-improvement and to make self-improvement. We have the ability to delay gratification. (coughs) We may want something now, and we decide, no, we're not going to do it now. Time for it later. The appropriate time for it is three hours from now, a week from now, two weeks from now, a year from now. That's a terribly important part of being a human being because, you see, an animal cannot delay gratification, whatever it wants, it goes after it. It can't think, what about if I do this two weeks later, would it be better? Or I should delay? And incidentally, the inability to delay is one of the things that plagues humanity. Believe me, in my field of addiction, if there's anything that characterizes an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's his inability to be like. I sometimes ask a drug addict, well, what would happen if I go out on the street and I try and send you some pills, and I say, oh, this gives you a fantastic effect. Better than heroin, better than cocaine, and it's dirt cheap, you have it for $2 a piece instead of 50 And then I would tell you what, you know, you certainly want all you can get. And then I'd tell you, wait, there's one little thing I've got to tell you about this. You see, when you take this particular pill, the effect, the high, doesn't come on anywhere between 48 to 72 hours. I said, would you, add, would you want, would you take it? They said, no. I said, what about if I give it to you for $2? He said, I wouldn't want it. What about if I give it to you for 25 cents? He said, you, could, you know, I wouldn't take it if you give it to me for free. Because the need of the addict is something you need. You don't tell me I'm going to get something delayed, a delayed reaction. 36, 48 hours later, immediate gratification. And you know that being a human being has to do with delaying gratification. In fact, that's one of the things that we're taught of in Yiddishkeit at a very, very early age. I was taught that there was nothing wrong with an ice cream, nothing at all. But if I did pleasures, I had to wait. Why? Because. And I learned to wait. I remember I was five years old, I learned to wait. And I have to wait six hours when I was five years old. I have to wait three hours. Remember, throwing generations generation, generation that I stepped up. I remember this like distinctly. We were on crossing Eleventh Street. We lived at Eleventh between North and Garfield, and there was an ice cream man. And there was a little cart, and I wanted an ice cream. And my mother said, "You can't have it because you're lazy." And I said, just give me a glass of milk. You see how fast I'll become (laughs) illiterate. But I learned how to delay. It's important to learn how to delay. We teach our children how to delay. It's a very, very important lesson. Not that there's anything wrong with ice cream. It's not the right time for it. Does that strike a bell? Does that strike a bell about what kind of things we should be teaching our children? very good and it's very proper, it's just not the right time for it. If you think that maybe if many of them had gotten the message that it's good and proper, but you've got to learn to wait, that maybe we wouldn't have the problems that we have now with a culture that is threatened with its very existence with age? Maybe we ought to teach more teach our little kids about how to wait. So delayed gratification is a human quality. No animal can do that. No animal can think about what are the consequences of my behavior. What if I do this now? What's going to be the effects long-term? No animal thinks of long-term effects. It doesn't have that ability. You and I have the ability to think of long-term effects. And then finally, no animal is truly free. Why? Because an animal is governed by whatever its body wants it to do. If an animal has a thirst or a craving, it must do what its body wants it to do. An animal can't say no. What happens if an animal is hungry? It's gonna go look for food. But what if the animal decides that it wants to fast that thing? There's no such thing as an animal deciding I'm gonna fast today. Because if an animal feels hungry, it must go for food. But I have the capacity to say, yeah, I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat today. Hey, we just did it. We did it for 26 hours. I didn't give up. We made a decision. We're hungry, but we're not going to eat. The ability to delay or to refuse a body gratification is uniquely human. And that's what makes us free. We're not slaves to our bodies the way animals are. Well, is it possible that anything can stop an animal? Well, yes, a fear of punishment will stop an animal. So, for example, if you have this little little animal, this little jackal that hasn't eaten anything, and uh, it looks for food, and uh, finally it finds a carcass. And it's so terribly hungry it walk through that carcass, but there's a big, strong tiger standing over that carcass. Well, you know that little is not going to go anywhere near it. Why? They're afraid of getting killed. Oh, you mean fear, then, will stop an animal from giving in to a body desire? Sure. Well, what happens if the only thing that stops me is fear? Fear of punishment. Well, if fear punishment is the only thing that stops me, I still haven't progressed beyond an animal level. So suppose that I'm working in this financial concern, and I have the knowledge, computer-wise, to transfer money from that account to my account, from that account to my account, so within a short period of time, I could amass a great fortune by computer crime. But then I think, you know, if they bring in an auditor here who is very sharp on computer crime, they may be able to trace that. And, oh my God, if that's ever traced to me, you know, I have to give up all the money that I took. I'll have to, I'll be fined probably $50,000, and I'll probably be in prison for 15 to 20 years. I can't take that, that's too big a risk to take. Well, then what's stopping me from being a The fear of being caught and punished. Well, the fear of being caught and punished is not just me human. When then do I become a human being? If I govern my behavior without fear of punishment, nobody in the world is going to say that this is wrong, and nobody is going to criticize, nobody is going to punish me, but I am not going to do this because I believe it is morally wrong or it is going to be wrong. That's the unique human quality. So you see, over and above sapiens, over and above intellect, we just listed about six or seven things which comprise the human spirit and which make us unique human beings. Now, those are all abilities. The ability to learn from history, the ability to think about purpose, the ability to delay gratification, all of these are abilities. The ability to improve ourselves. Now, we don't always use the abilities that we've got. And to the degree that we don't use those abilities, we are incomplete human beings. That's not a nice thing to be. We ought to pride ourselves on being as complete human beings as we can. you know what really was in those little Yiddish words that our grandparents and parents used to tell us? Zay Be a mench. But what do you think I am? An alligator? What do you mean be a mench? Be a mench doesn't mean to walk on two feet. Be a doesn't mean to be able to add two plus two equals four even punch keys on a computer. Humanists doesn't even mean to be a PhD. You can be a PhD and be a higher. You can be a PhD and be subhuman. How? If you don't do all the things that a human being is capable of doing. Learn from history. Delay gratification. Improve yourself. And don't give in to every desire you can get away with it. That is being a mensch. That's what our ancestors meant when they told us, be a mensch. Do you realize how many, how few people from really are complete mensch. And you see, that's what I found when people had to recover from alcohol and drugs. They had to reverse all of the kinds of things. Because when you go into alcohol and drugs, you lose them all. No alcoholic ever learns from past history, otherwise they wouldn't drink anymore. Because his past history has told him every time he comes to drink, he gets into disaster. So he doesn't learn from past history. He doesn't think about the purpose of life. For the purpose of life for the alcoholic is to get more booze. He doesn't think about self-improvement because he's too busy self-deteriorating. <coughs> he doesn't delay gratification at all. Never. He's totally unable to make free decisions because the alcoholic is dominated, is a total slave to his alcohol. So I watched how these people improve, and they overcome these traits, and they become spiritual people, they become full mentioned. And then I had to look at, well, what about those of us who don't drink? What about those of us who don't use drugs? But what about if our purpose in life becomes to amass more money? Oh, more money, greater wealth. Then that becomes the addiction. Then I can't think of self-improvement when my golden life is making more money. What's my purpose of life? To make more. How much more? You know, the one-time Jay Paul Getty, how much is enough? Is there just a little more? Yeah. I remember a story that my mother used to tell me. These little stories that we heard from our parents are so precious. A story about a poor beggar, who was given a magic purse, and the magic purse was such that when he ever took out a dollar, another dollar appeared. And they found him dead after three days in a pile of dollars. Okay. He never stopped to eat or drink, just kept that dollars until he died from hunger and starvation. Mm-hmm. Beautiful story. Lovely stories that, that we heard from our parents and grandparents. And incidentally, if any of you remember these stories that you haven't recorded, up Please do so, record them somewhere, send them to me. Somebody ought to make a collection of all these wonderful stories that we've heard that have come out through the ages today. Many of them have some very valuable teachings. And so if you're driven by accumulation of wealth, if you're driven by accumulation of more honors, more fame, more appreciation, to the point where that becomes your goal in life, then you're addicted to pride. You can be addicted to pride, you can be addicted to money, just a person, as a person can be addicted to alcohol, or to food, or to lust. These can all become masters over ourselves, and then we become their slaves. And you know, one of the things that I think we ought to realize is that slavery is something totally abhorrent. And we actually celebrate our liberation from slavery much more than we do on Independence Day. Did you ever wonder about how we celebrate an Independence Day? In the United States, July 4th, you uh, make firecrackers and fireworks, and you have a picnic and a parade, and that's it. But well, what did Jews do about a celebration day? They got out of Egypt, eight days pesa. Right? So for eight days Pesach, you got over three weeks in advance. <laughs> I mean, I that's a celebration. They make firecrackers in a parade, the family. <laughs> <laughs> so instead we have eight days of Matzah. Right. I'll tell you what it makes the next day started. Why? We're commemorating the independence from Egypt. Okay, I'll give it It's a little bit overdoing it, but that's we'll give it Then we make Kiddush Friday night. We say, Shabbos, Zedekeletzias <laughs> Matai. It's a commemoration of going out from Egypt. Not only once a year, but once a week. Right? <laughs> okay. In the morning, when we put on the till, right, the till, wear in commemoration and going out of Egypt. And we put on a palace, that says our commemoration and going out of Egypt. Wherever you turn, any minute from the day, all day and all night, you're busy commemorating this is an Independence Day celebration. I mean, you know, there's too much of a good thing also, you know. You know? The answer is that it's not an Independence Day celebration. That's a political thing that we could have taken care of with one day of a parade. What we're celebrating is freedom from enslavement. And you know how often we have to be reminded of freedom from enslavement? Not once a year, not once a week, but about 50 times a day. Why? Because the kind of life that we live, we can easily fall into enslavement. It is so easy. It is easy to become a slave to conveniences. And sometimes, you know, I've been fortunate in that I've had people remind me sometimes as to how far I've gone off. Here, about two years ago, we traded in the car. We got 1991. Beautiful car. It has a cruise control. Mm-hmm. On the cruise control, there's a little button there that if you push it, it accelerates one mile per hour every time you push it. And then there's another button that slows you up one mile an hour every time you push it. Well, everything worked well, except the one that slows you up one mile an hour. That didn't work. Anyway, I was terribly aggravated. A friend of car, and the food control isn't working well. That day, a young woman came in to me and uh, told me that she had graduated our treatment program eight months earlier and she said that she was very happy about the kinds of things that are now happening in her life Uh, first of all she found an apartment for herself and her child that she could afford and she finally got a full-time job 40 hours a week at minimum wage but it's a full-time job so she's thrilled about that and now it's September the child is going to start going to school and so she won't have to be worried about a babysitter all these wonderful things happening to her. And then she said, uh pretty soon that she'll be able to save up enough money to have her car fixed because it doesn't go in reverse. The reverse gear doesn't work. And I said, Well, how do you drive a car without a reverse? Okay. And she says, Well, it takes a little bit of figuring. <laughs> but you got it. If you got to think as to where you're going to park it or you're going to get out of it, then it takes a little figuring and a little help from God. And she said, but you know I've got to remember there's some people who don't have a car at all. No. Well, that put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> here I was griping because the deceleration button on the cruise control didn't work, <laughs> and here's a little thrill for having a car even though nothing going reverse. We can become enslaved to conveniences. You can become enslaved when your microwave doesn't work. And you know, this culture has gotten so absolutely... You should be talking about delay of gratification. Do you know that I was listening to the other day, to the radio, and the adverse, advertisement was that it's a good thing to switch, anybody who has switched from AT&T to any of the others, should switch back to AT and T, so you shouldn't have these long delays on long distance calls. Long delays. So I went back and picked up the phone, and it took 11 seconds until I was, until my call went through. Right? So I can't wait 11 seconds. They're <laughs> talking about delay of gratification, and I can see what it's doing to me. And I've got to be on my guard, and you better be on your guard also, because it's making wrecks out of us. I was at the outpatient office, and I left. There was an article that I had in my other office. This was a Wednesday. I was going to be in the other office on Thursday morning. The world wouldn't have come to an end if I would have seen that article Thursday morning, so instead i pick up the telephone, and i tell my secretary, fax it over. Yeah. So I had the article within a few seconds. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with it? It becomes an expectation. And then you can get over here. And then if somebody doesn't respond to you within a few seconds, you lose your patience with them. Right? So you transfer all of this mishagas into your home, to your husband, to your wife, to your parents, to your children, to your grandchildren. Right? And it's a, a it impinges on the way we live. I have no idea as to how we become slaves to our culture. Why do you think we have a divorce rate of 40-50%? Yeah. Have you any idea why? We don't have patience to work. We don't have the patience to work? The to work. Well, you. that's right, but it goes even beyond patience. What do you mean repair something? Right? Why do you repair it? When's the last time anybody took a radio to the repair shop? No hands, okay? I took radios to the repair shop. There's a few people over here who don't want to give away your age. You took a radio repair shop, right? We used to do that. Today you took a radio repair shop. They look at you as though you were shook You don't repair a radio. You throw it away. You get another one. Right? So the whole cultural attitude is don't repair things. Throw it away. Get another one. But don't you want to put some work in it to make it? Function? No. Don't do that. You don't like the way it's working? Throw it away and get another one. And not only with radios, did even though with automobiles also. <clears throat> I mean, if you've got a car, three years. <laughs> all right. Four years—that's the maximum. Now, right. so if you're not in a position to trade it in, can't help that. Right. But if you're at all in a position to trade it in, why should you keep a car for four years? But what happens if it's running all right? Still, you got to trade it in. <laughs> We begin to believe these lies. Right? And not only do we believe these about radios and cars, but we believe, in, believe, them, believe them about people. So all that we're doing with our marriages are we're following the whole custom that the cultures going to do with everything else we relate to. Right? So we don't repair something that's gone wrong. Something wrong, husband or wife, throw away get another one. That's an issue, right? Why? Because we become enslaved to the way we live. Instead of keeping our, our independence and being totally free and exerting our, all of our, our facets of our humanity. This is what I meant by living and growing. Not the kind of growth that animals have, of growing only in weight and in strength, but growing in humanity. Growing in our menschlichkeit, and in order to grow in menschlichkeit, we first have to realize what are the basic ABCs of being a mensch. Talk to you about your parents and grandparents. Uh, they were not victims of this culture. They came over in the early nineteen hundreds, before the modern industrial society had given us all this Michigas. and they were fierce individuals. They were slaves, and they did not become slaves. Um, I can remember each one of them was an individual in their own right. Names that I can quote, uh, people, some more learned, some more scholarly, some less scholarly, but whatever they believed in, they believed in fiercely. And they made sacrifices for what they believed in. And they grew, they continued to grow and they were true mentioned, and we have a lot to learn. (laughs) So what I did in the books about living each day and growing each day is I took the kinds of things that went into the making of my life that I had learned from my parents and grandparents, the kinds of things that your parents and grandparents have been taught from the eternal wells of uh, of the Jewish and Jewish literature, and tried to make something for each day. Again, I learned from my alcoholic friends that the only way to deal with life is to (coughs) take each day as a unit. An alcoholic had told me if I had to think that I could never drink again for the rest of my life, I couldn't survive. I don't know how to do that. It's too big a job. Today I can survive without drinking. But what about tomorrow? Why should I worry about tomorrow drinking today? I can't do anything about tomorrow today. So the only thing I can do about today is today's challenge. I'll deal with today's challenge. Tomorrow, i will worry about tomorrow. I have to realize that if we cut these down to bite size, we can handle them. So what I did in the book of Growing Each Day, particularly, is suggested additional ways in which to grow in our humanity, in which to grow in our spirituality, in which to grow in our mental But rather than throw the whole book at us and say, "Hey, this is what you got to do." count it down to 354 days, which is the Jewish calendar, and say, hey, today, try to do this. And if we can succeed, then at the end of 354 days, we will have made 354 increments of growth in our person out That's pretty good. Then he said, well, what do we do at the end of the year? they are write a new book. So I said, no. <laughs> at the end of the year, we got to go back and take a look as to whether the growth that we were satisfied with last time, whether that satisfies us today. I am constantly finding out, as I grow more, that I'm dissatisfied with the standards I had yesterday. The standards that I had yesterday, they were for yesterday. But the standards that I have today are totally different. So I've got to go back to that same growth item that I dealt with in 1991, and repeated on a new level in 1992, and then on a new level in 1993. So that growth is an endless process. <coughs> How long do you continue to grow? Hopefully, until the last day of our lives. Because what growing about? What growing? What living is really all about is constantly growing. An animal reaches a maximum <coughs> because it only grows in the body. Our bodies reach a maximum somewhere around 20, 21, or whatever. But that doesn't mean that our growth reaches a maximum. We continue to grow. We continue to grow, and not only in the narrow limits of intellect, we continue to grow in all of the things that make us a human being. In learning from history, in thinking about self-improvement, in being free human beings, and thinking about the consequences of our behavior. And as we do this, we will begin thinking, well, what about, why am I doing this for? What is my goal and what is my purpose? And we will recognize what our purpose is. Because the the reason that most people don't think about purposes, don't come to a conclusion about purposes, is they never think about it. Some people have a purpose in life to work. Well, come on, working is only some way in which we survive. How are we going to find out what our real purpose is? Well, look what you do after like, you hey, the real purpose of life is to watch television. <laughs> the real purpose of life is to play golf. The real purpose of life is to sit in the fire and drink beer. I mean, these are the kinds of things that... that now, there may nothing be wrong with watching a particular program. It may nothing be may nothing wrong with playing golf, but that can't be a purpose in life. Well, what is the purpose in life? Well, I don't know, but how about let's think about it. Not even saying we're going to find it. All I'm saying is we should think and we should search. And there's one thing that we find, that if you begin to think and search diligently and sincerely, you'll find the answer. And so this is what I meant by living and growing. Cut it down to bite size, living each day and growing each day. And hopefully by doing that, we can be the true mention that we were destined. Why is that important? I'm asking this to somebody here today. Because if you have a little four-cylinder car that cannot put out more than 60 horsepower, and all four cylinders are operating, it will give you a gentle, smooth ride. Will it give you 120 miles an hour? No. But whatever it does give you will be a smooth ride. But what happens if you have a souped-up eight-cylinder car that produces 300 horsepower? Oh, that can burn up the road for you. But what happens if two cylinders are not hitting? Two cylinders are out of function. Well, it can produce 300 horsepower, but it may produce 200. 200 is more than three times the power of that little car. Yes, this big car is more powerful, but it is not gonna give you a smooth ride. It's gonna give you a very rough, choppy ride. Why? Because two cylinders are missing. Yeah, but it still has got more power than the other one. Yeah, but the other one was meant to be a four cylinder. Don't you see this one was meant to be an eight cylinder. And an eight cylinder that's only operating on six <coughs> is not going to be operating well. <coughs> now you see animals that grow only in body, they're like four cylinders, right? They're happy, they do with whatever they do, them, they live on the chuck They're cut and they're satisfied. We are eight cylinders. And if we're not operating on all eight, if we are not everything we can be, we're going to be miserable. Because we're missing cylinders. But unfortunately, what do people do when they get miserable? Instead of trying to find out why am I miserable, where am I missing? They'll go out and get some chemical to make them feel good. So for one person it will be a beer, another person will be marijuana, another person will be cocaine, another person will be some tranquilizers that they get from the doctor, from the drugstore, right? all to make them oblivious to the way that they're feeling. I say, hey, put the chemicals away. If you're not feeling good about life, start looking as to whether you're missing cylinders. And if we operate on all these cylinders, we've got a chance of a great deal more satisfaction and happiness in our life because that's what we've got to do to be living and growing. So that's what I meant. I don't know whoever thought of the title for this, living and growing. What they meant by it, and I find out who picks up these titles. Now, like the guy who, there's a very wealthy man who uh, invited a Group of people to a party in his state, and he had this huge swimming pool. and He told the guests who were there, a lot of young men there, he said, Now, this swimming pool is infested with man-eating alligators. And anyone who jumps in and swims across the length of the swimming pool can request anything, and I'll fulfill his request. <coughs> this man was a multi-billionaire. Oh, all of a sudden, one guy jumps in and he swims like crazy. He comes out on the other side, and the guy runs up to him and he says, "That was extreme bravery. Now you can have any request. What is it that you want?" He says, "I want to find out who the guy was that pushed me in." <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I want to find out who the person was that thought up these titles that I then got to live up to. <laughs> but being are the <laughs> Being that the title that was chosen was Living and Growing turned out to be something which I think we can benefit by. Because the God's help, we all want to live, but we've got to realize what is life for us, and in what way is it dignified, a life dignified for that which we are, for real men. And the definition for that is what I think that life is really all about is to to grow. But I can't grow anymore after I reach my maximum growth at age 19 or 20. No, physically it can't grow anymore. But we can grow spiritually. And that kind of growth can continue and should continue forever and ever and ever. Thank you so much for listening.